You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Fancy Bear is cited in Ukrainian inboxes. Why Russian cyber attacks against Ukraine have fallen short of expectations. The ToddyCAD APT is active in European and Asian networks. Icefall ICS vulnerabilities are described. Europol makes nine collars. Andrea Little Limbago from Enteros on the global state of data protection and sharing. Rick Howard speaks with Michelangelo Sedagni from Nopsec on the future of vulnerability management. And we are shocked, shocked to hear of corruption in the FSB. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022. start today with a question. What are you scared of? Dentists? The dark? Starting conversations with people you find attractive? Or how about nuclear terrorism and the tax man? Social engineers play on fear, hope, sympathy, vanity, greed, and so forth. Especially fear, a human emotion the GRU knows like the back of its paw. Cert UA has warned that APT-28 The GRU operators, familiarly known as Fancy Bear, have opened a renewed campaign of exploitation against systems still vulnerable to Folina, the Microsoft Diagnostic Tool vulnerability tracked as CVE-2022-3190. Fancy Bear is running two distinct campaigns, Ukraine's SSSCIP warns, both of which use phishing as their modes of access. The fish bait appeals to two very different sets of fears— The first campaign, which Malwarebytes has also described, counts on an email recipient's fear of nuclear war, which is topical given the ongoing Russian nuclear saber-rattling described by the Telegram. The malicious document, Nuclear Terrorism, a Very Real Threat, carries CredoMap malware as its payload, CertUA says. The other campaign uses a more proximate, if less existential, dread to induce the recipient to click, Fear of the taxman. Anyone in wartime might be forgiven an understandable lapse of memory where paying taxes is concerned. The fishbait sample Cert UA shares is sternly entitled Imposition of Penalties, and the malicious document carries a cobalt strike beacon as its payload. The email's subject is Notice of Non-Payment of Tax. The goal of both campaigns appears to be espionage, although it's worth noting that CERT-UA sees the tax-themed campaign as directed against critical infrastructure. 
An op-ed in the Washington Post summarizes what's becoming consensus opinion about Russia's failure to deliver the devastating cyber attacks that were generally expected during the run-up to war. Ukrainian resilience, with appropriate and well-applied assistance from the private sector, was able to fend the Russian operators off. According to the Post, the close partnerships that have emerged between U.S. technology companies and Western cybersecurity agencies is one of the unheralded stories of the war. The public-private rift in the tech world that followed Edward Snowden's revelations in 2013 appears largely to be over because of the backlash against Russia's attacks on the 2016 and 2020 U.S. presidential elections and now its unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Kaspersky describes Toddy Cat, a hitherto unremarked APT active against high-profile European and Asian targets, The threat actor works against vulnerable Microsoft Exchange instances, has been active since late 2020, and deploys at least two distinctive tools, the Samurai Backdoor and the Ninja Trojan. It's not clear whom Toddy Cat is working for, and its disparate target list offers few obvious suggestions. The group is said to have been active against Taiwan, Vietnam, Afghanistan, India, Iran, Malaysia, Pakistan, Russia, Slovakia, Thailand, the United Kingdom, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and Indonesia. Researchers at Forescout describe OT Icefall, which they characterize as a set of 56 vulnerabilities affecting devices from 10 OT vendors. Forescout calls the affected systems insecure by design and divides the vulnerabilities into five categories. First, remote code execution. This allows an attacker to execute arbitrary code on the impacted device, but the code may be executed in different specialized processors and different contexts within a processor, so an RCE does not always mean full control of a device. This is usually achieved by insecure firmware or logic update functions that allow the attacker to supply arbitrary code. Next is denial of service. This allows an attacker to either take a device completely offline or to prevent access to some function. Then there's file, firmware, or configuration manipulation. This allows an attacker to change important aspects of a device, such as files stored within it, the firmware running on it, or its specific configurations. This is usually achieved via critical functions lacking the proper authentication or authorization or integrity checking that would prevent attackers from tampering with the device. They next list compromise of credentials. This allows an attacker to obtain credentials to device functions, usually either because they are stored or transmitted insecurely. And finally, authentication bypass. This allows an attacker to bypass existing authentication functions and invoke desired functionality on the target device. Completely mitigating the icefall vulnerability will require vendor-delivered patches. In the meantime, network isolation, restricting network connections to specifically selected engineering workstations, and of course, focusing on consequence reduction, are all encouraged. CISA continues its program of alerting operators to industrial control system issues, The agency yesterday released six ICS security advisories. Bravo Europol, the international police agency working with its Dutch and Belgian colleagues, yesterday bagged nine miscreants involved in a phishing operation that had winkled its victims out of millions of euros. The arrests, all in the Netherlands but under a Belgian warrant, 
were made in the course of 24 house searches that also netted a lot of ill-gotten swag, including firearms, ammunition, jewelry, electronic devices, cash, and cryptocurrency, which seem to be the usual desires of cybercriminals nowadays. All that's missing is the snazzy and ostentatious sports car. But perhaps cybercriminals in the low countries are more given to riding bicycles than their Russian, Nigerian, or, for that matter, American counterparts are. What's with all the jewelry? Is the typical cybercriminal a fashionista? The world wonders. If you are a cybercriminal, why not call Europol and let them know what it is about jewelry that draws you so? We're sure they'd love to talk to you. And finally, TASS is authorized to disclose that they just aren't making Siloviki the way they used to, and it's a shame. An FSB officer has been arrested for stealing cryptocurrency from some hoods he was supposed to be arresting. We note, parenthetically, that this would never happen in the Netherlands. TASS quotes its official sources as saying, The 235th Garrison Military Court a month ago arrested Dmitry Demin, lieutenant colonel of the Federal Security Service for the Samara region, on charges of especially large-scale fraud. And on June 21st, his detention was extended until early August. Lieutenant Colonel Demin apparently shook the goon, one A.O. Makalov, down for his crypto during the course of an investigation. And when Mr. Makalov was later arrested by others, he apparently asked the cops what happened to that crypto the lieutenant colonel took from him. Time to lawyer up, comrade lieutenant colonel. Anywho, Russia is particularly troubled by corruption, and while it's less common over here than over there, it happens to you too, Yankee. Back in 2015, the FBI bagged a Secret Service and a DEA special agent in Baltimore on charges of ripping off the Silk Road crooks they were supposed to be investigating. It was a poor career move for the duo, who should have known better. By the time the Justice Department issued its press release on the indictments, the two were already described as former federal agents. We imagine Lieutenant Colonel Demin will soon be described as a former FSB officer. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. 
This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. The CyberWire's own Rick Howard recently sat down with Michelangelo Sidagni. He's chief technology officer at Nopsec. Their discussion centered on the future of vulnerability management. I'm joined by Michelangelo Sidagni, the CTO and co-founder of Nopsec. Uh, Michelangelo, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Rick. Uh, glad to be here and, uh, you know, hope to come back many times. Absolutely. We will put you on the rotating roster. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about vulnerability management today, and I've been doing vulnerability management in the various places I've worked since the internet was young, you know, for the last 30 years or so. And on the surface, to me, it doesn't appear that the community is getting any better at this never-ending task. But that can't be true, right? I mean, I'm sure there's been advances over the years. Can you give us a sketch of how the industry does vulnerability management today? It's really like, uh, you know, what the industry does these days is not like big organization. It's not what it's supposed to be. First of all, the industry identify vulnerability management, do it only a part of it, which is vulnerability assessment, which is the art or the science of finding vulnerability using um, an infrastructure network scanner or a web application scanner. So basically, you point at this uh, tools, the software to the uh, your web application, and soon enough, a bunch of vulnerabilities come back. But that's only part of the story. The most important parts are having uh, a comprehensive uh, asset inventory. Part of vulnerability management is uh, called vulnerability assessment. The third part is like very, very important prioritization. I mean, after like I found hundreds of thousands of vulnerability, which are high and critical, what, what am I supposed to do? I, am I like fix all the critical and leave alone the medium or low? Well, it's not as clear-cut because not a, the vulnerability created equals. For example, there are critical vulnerabilities, and that's where the prioritization comes in, that basically like they're critical in the CVS's call scale, but uh, they've never been exploited. They, there's no indication of exploit available in the, in the, in the wild. They've never been used because and never tried to be exploited because they're so hard to basically for like a, a motivated attacker to build a, a stable exploit. And there are others that are like medium and low that they are used all the time as a jumping ground to actually find mounting like a, a more sophisticated attack. So basically exploiting one vulnerability and then like chain it to another. If you prioritize correctly vulnerability, you don't have to patch 100%. You, you only patch vulnerabilities that are critical for your system, for your network. 
let's unpack some of that, right? So first of all, you know, you're talking about just discovery of unknown software that's running out there. Like you, you were talking about somebody throws up a web server in AWS that you didn't know about. So you have to discover those things. The other one, though, and it's become more prominent here this last year, is just keeping track of the software components that we're all running, you know, and that is the software that we develop ourselves, plus the commercial software that we use, like Microsoft or whatever it is. But the thing that's come into the front this year is supply chain software, all the components that everybody's using from open source software. We talked about Log4j that came out last December. Everybody was scrambling to see if we were running that component in our software. So that's a huge job. Have we gotten better at being able to keep track of all that stuff? It depends, obviously, on the security material of an organization. Basically, like attackers, they're getting smarter, and they take the path of least resistance. It's really hard, for example, like to hack a government up front. But if you take the like supply chain route, it's uh, might be actually easier for the compromise and and obtain the the same result. You mentioned uh, prioritizing the work here, and you refer to it in some of the things you've written as risk-based vulnerability management. So can you elaborate on what that means exactly? Risk is basically can be split in like in really two areas. One is uh, threat-based uh, risk prioritization. So that means that, again, like not all of the vulnerabilities are created equal. Some, they're never being exploited. Some are hard to be exploited. Some are currently used uh, as part of like threat intelligence information. I agree that the criticality of the vulnerability feeds into the risk equation, but I'm not sure that's the most important part. If I was going to base decisions on what work to do over other kinds of work, I would base it on data or systems that are material to my business. So if I know what those are, and then there's a critical vulnerability that pops up, then clearly that we need to work on that one first. But if it's, but if it's worrying about the, you know, the menu from the, the cafeteria down in the basement, maybe we don't worry about that one so much. The second part is what I call contextual risk. So basically, is based on the your organization existing controls. That means it's, it's very important to perform a threat modeling on the vulnerabilities. So calculate and visualize the attack path on vulnerable uh, system, but also the of system they are actually reachable from the attacker. This is all good stuff, Michelangelo, but we're going to have to leave it there. That's uh, Michelangelo Sedani, the CTO and co-founder of Nopsec. Thanks for coming on the show. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Andrea Little-Limbago. She is the Senior Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos. Andrea, it's always great to welcome you back to the show. I want to start off today just by sort of checking in with you. <laughs> if we could do a, a broad uh, check-in on the state of the world. <laughs> and I know that's a lot. <laughs> but maybe let's start big and then and then go a little smaller. When it comes to... Uh, you know, democracies, uh, authoritarianism, and how that's affecting our ability to uh, connect with each other online. Where where are we right now? Yeah, I think we're continuing to see a lot of the trends that have been accelerating over the last few years. So it, it's a great question. You know, I look at you know, really the, the broad geopolitical fault lines are, are starting to become more embedded. And then along those, you see 
the technological fault lines basically are are starting to follow suit with the geopolitical, and that's why they're they're so intertwined. And when you when you think about either the role of emerging technologies, both in society and in modern warfare, they're just so crucial and the foundational to both components that when you do start seeing some of the geopolitical fault lines start to emerge, natural almost to see that the, those are also going to lead to divides along technology, along uh, approaches to data, and that's where we're seeing you know, a big aspect of it, and approaches to what what's viewed as a trusted network. And you know, at a very high level, we are still seeing China really leading the way on, on more of the digital authoritarian model, and that does still continue to gain traction. We still see you know additional laws starting to pop up uh, from Cambodia and Thailand, over you know, really across the globe, that are putting more restrictions and censorship on data. Um, but at the same time, we still see the reverse trend of over 100 different data privacy laws popping up across the globe. And mm. those are interesting in that some are under the auspices of national security. And so actually are almost, they sound very similar to something like the GDPR, which is intended for having protecting individual data rights. But mm. you actually do see aspects of the GDPR in China's data privacy law. And so there are some similarities along that line as far as you know, data minimization and what kind of data different companies can have access to and its flow across borders. But where you see differences are, you know, it's almost like the devil's in the details. Like for China's law, for instance, there is governmental access allowed pretty mm-hmm. much with, without any kind of you know, judicial review or oversight or accountability. And so that's where you start seeing some very big differences. But there is, you know, really across the globe, still a push towards greater data protection, data privacy, which is which is a nice movement. How is this affecting the big global companies, you know, the, the apples of the world who are doing business across the world, but of course China, a hugely important market for them? Yeah, you know, it's really making companies across the globe really rethink their global footprint. And on the one hand, you know, it's much easier said than done, you know, for companies like Apple who have invested decades in, uh, in their manufacturing plants, for instance, in right. China. You, you can't just pick up and move a manufacturing plant and find that labor you know, anywhere else. That that actually, you know, that takes a, a decent amount of time to rebuild that elsewhere. But at the same time, you know, Apple is starting to rethink some of that. And, and it's not just Apple. We've seen other companies either, you know, starting to minimize their footprint. And I, I would say, you know, it's not a, you know, full out complete withdrawal, but there's a, a decoupling going on where companies are rethinking, you know, what data they have, what, what, what some of their core components of their, you know, across their supply chain and trying to lessen that dependency on China for those very reasons. And so we'll see what happens. That the, you know, There has been a, a big increase in you know, reshoring and decoupling over the last few years mm-hmm. from China. And that really started to, you know, it kicked off really during the, the start of the trade wars you know, during you know, around 2016. So it's, you know, the, the pandemic accelerated when everyone started to realize just how big their concentration risks were when, when, when there was a lockdown. And right. I would say for a lot of those companies, there is a geopolitical component too, but it's also... The, the aspect of not having all your eggs in one basket from a supply chain uh, perspective. So even if they're not necessarily bought into the, the shifting geopolitical dynamics, uh, companies are bought into the notion that they realize that they had a single source of failure and are trying to diversify from that. Mm, yeah. Where do you see the, the trend lines uh, headed? What do, you, what do you think we're going here? Yeah, you know, I, I do think that we're, we're entering, you know, whatever, this, this new normal. And that's, you know, what, whatever we want to call it. Uh, you know, I think it's the... You know, post-pandemic new normal, whatever the, the hmm. this era ends up getting named, but it, it is you know it's a, it's a different global order than what we've seen in the fat in the past. It's you know I, I think there's a sort of an easy trend to thinking that oh maybe it's just going to be like the Cold War. We'll call it you know China and the U.S. Cold War and make it easy because that's fairly familiar for 
you know, people who have been around or have studied the, the history of that. But it's not the cold war. And that's one of the things that I you know, try and reinforce over and over again because it, you're really under a very different system. You have one technology just changes everything. The internet uh, and you know, various forms of emerging technology, artificial intelligence, all that really makes it a game changer just on the, on the aspect of, of what warfare and technology will, how that will contribute to any kind of geopolitical tensions. And then also, you know, there, you know it's much more of a multipolar system. You know, there's much more entanglement of the economies. And so mm-hmm. if you think about during the Cold War, the, the economies were, were fairly distinct. Now there's just so much, you know, it used to be called you know, mutually assured you know, economic destruction because uh, the, you know, the Chinese and U.S. economies were so tightly controlled, no one ever thought that there would, could be a war. And so it will be interesting to see what happens with some of this decoupling. But I would argue it, you know, the decoupling, you know, if, if done well, should be prioritized in areas of national security interests and, you know, and, and, and you know, social, aspects of social security as far as you know, health security and so forth, um, like we saw during right. the pandemic, and focus on those areas. But there are still areas where there can be mutual gains. And so hopefully there are some, those still remain a component that keeps some links between the different countries. But there, there is a decoupling. It, it's going to take a long time. I, I really don't think it'll be an entire decoupling, but it is, you know, where the U.S. and China go, it really does spill over into the rest of the world. And then what you see with the, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you see Europe really coming together much faster. And that actually, you know, really decreased a lot of the tensions across U.S. and Europe as well and brought the EU and U.S. really a lot more tight, you know, tightly coordinated than they ever had been um, for recent history. So we, we do, we are seeing some push factors that also are pushing a lot of the democracies closer together in ways that they hadn't been before. There was just an Indo-Pacific uh, economic agreement uh, introduced uh, probably you know, a few weeks ago in the May time frame. And um, that also is getting you know, just additional economic ties. And that kind of overlays with the Quad Alliance that also has supply chain and technological uh, ties. And we're, we're seeing just a really a restructuring. And I think a lot of that will be along you know, technology uh, and, and rules and regulations of the, of the internet will really be some of the driving forces that are binding different groups together. All right. Well, Andrea Little Limbago, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.